Hello, welcome to York Street. We hope that this sermon will be an inspiring and impactful one, just what you need at this time. For any of our sermon-based studies, please head to our website at www.yorkstreet.com.au. So grab a cuppa, grab your notebook, whatever you need, and we hope that you enjoy the sermon. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, Alan, for reading that to us. I just wanted that read separately and in a different voice to mine, and your voice is much deeper, so it's <laughs> got more power in it. Hey, today we are beginning our new series in the Beatitudes. So why the Beatitudes? Does that seem a bit odd to kind of be doing that for the next eight weeks. Our key verse this year as a church family is Colossians 3.2. Those of you who are regular here at Yorkie, which is most of you in this room, do you know it yet? I hope so. Would you say it with me? Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. The Beatitudes are such a great example of this, so that is why we're doing it. A worldview is how we see life. It's a pattern of ideas and beliefs and convictions and habits that help us to make sense of the world. Every one of us has a worldview. That includes you, that includes me. It's influenced by a whole stack of things, um, our culture, education, the books we read, the media we take in, our teachers, our parents, the questions we ask, the people we hang out with, our experiences of life. So the question is not if you have a worldview, but rather what kind of worldview you have. What we want as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, is a biblical worldview. We want to see things through a biblical lens, the way that God sees them. Not what's popular, not what's politically correct, not what the world tells us, but the way that God sees things. So if you want to know what the worldview of Jesus is, a great place to go is the Sermon on the Mount, which you can read in the book of Matthew in the Bible. These Beatitudes kick off the Sermon on the Mount. And what we see here is that in his typical style, Jesus comes in and turns the world on its head. And he challenges both the dominant systems of society and also our typical responses to life. And he starts with this really odd list of blessings that are countercultural to the core and actually the exact opposite to what a first century Jew would expect. And if you've grown up in the church, which is a lot of you here, please don't be numb or apathetic to how subversive these really are. Jesus is radically redefining who is blessed. And I would suggest that in 2022, these blessings are just as subversive today as they were back then. I thought I knew these Beatitudes. I had posters of them on my pink floral wallpapered bedroom wall as a little girl, showing my age by admitting pink floral wallpaper that I actually chose myself. <laughs> but they seemed pretty simple. A lovely list of things that Jesus wanted us to be like. Things to try and live up to. That was my understanding. But when you take a few steps in and ask some questions, you realise that these are not simple. There's actually more than meets the eye. 
They are a bombshell. They are radical. They are deeply challenging. And if we hear them right, they have the potential to completely turn upside down our view of ourselves, our view of other people, and our view of God. I have been wrecked by these over the past few weeks. Am I making them sound appealing? (laughs) So, over the next two months, as a church family, we're going to explore the Beatitudes. And we're going to sit at the feet of the Master, Jesus, and have our minds blown at what he's doing here. So, are you ready? That's when you're meant to go, yes, let's do this. (laughs) Would you pray with me as we jump into this? Loving God, we just want to commit this series to you. Our desire is just to create an intentional space for you to reveal yourself to us, your heart, your mind, and your attitudes. We invite you to open our eyes and soften our hearts. God, would you give us new insights? Would you transform what needs to be transformed within us? And Holy Spirit, we just want to say that you're welcome in this place. And we invite you now to come and have your way with us. Amen. I'm going to spend some time setting this up for us today because it would help us to know what to do and what not to do with the Beatitudes. If we can discover ourselves what Jesus was doing with them, that's helpful. That should be our key to understanding them because, after all, they're his Beatitudes. They're not ours to just do whatever we want with. So can I suggest there's two questions that we need to keep asking ourselves as we journey through these Beatitudes each week. Question one, who was Jesus saying these things to? And secondly, on what occasion? So what was the context? Beatitudes is a Latin phrase that means blessed or fortunate. And as I mentioned, these are the entry point to the Sermon on the Mount, which is really one of the most familiar passages in the Bible. This sermon, which starts in Matthew chapter 5, is the fullest record that we have all in one place of what Jesus regularly taught as he traveled through Galilee. But the key to understanding them is to realize that they follow on from chapter 4. Okay, you've got to read the two together. Can't understand chapter 5 without reading chapter 4. So if you've brought your Bibles with you, would you open them to Matthew 4? So this chapter starts with Jesus being led into the desert to be tempted by the devil after his baptism. He emerges from that 40 days later, and then he begins to preach. So let's take it from verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called to them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. 
News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So in the chapter 4, what we see is that Jesus comes onto the public stage. What is the core message that he's preaching here? He announces that the kingdom of heaven is near. Some versions of the Bible use the words, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You might like to look at your hand. Everybody, hold up your arm for a minute. Have a look at your hand. It's very close, isn't it? What's the kingdom of heaven? It's the reign and the rule of God. Pastor Rick Warren explains it like this. The kingdom of God is where Jesus is king. If Jesus is king in your heart, then the kingdom of God is within you. Because Jesus is king in heaven, then the kingdom of God is also in heaven. While Jesus walked the earth, he used miracles to announce that the kingdom of God was with them. And when the reign of Christ is fully realized on earth, then the kingdom of God is on earth. So the kingdom of God is the reign and the rule of God. And Jesus has said here that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he called people to repent, believe his good news, and follow him. Quick side note here. The gospel of the kingdom is both so complex and amazingly simple. Its complexity is found in the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Its simplicity is found in the way that we discover it which is to simply put our hand in Jesus' hand and follow him. So then what does Jesus do? He goes for a walk near the lake. Very typical Jesus. He seems to be the water and mountain guy. And he comes across two fishermen. He says, follow me. They do. Then he sees another two fishermen and their dad. And the same thing happens. I love that they didn't question it. They just followed. And then he travels around the whole area teaching and healing. News about him spreads like wildfire. And people are flocking to him from everywhere. So key to our understanding of what's going on here is to look at who's coming to him. Who's following him? Who's in that crowd? Matthew paints the picture very clearly for us so we don't miss it. In Matthew 4, 24, we see that it was the diseased, those suffering pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralysed. In that culture, they were the unimportant, the insignificant, the hurting, the sick, the poor, the deprived, the deficient, the spiritually destitute, those pushed to the absolute margins, those with no voice and no power. All who in the eyes of Roman society were the losers and the cursed. Have you ever noticed that before? And then we jump into Matthew 5. Remember, these chapter numbers weren't in the original text. They got added later. So we continue reading and we see in verse 1 that his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Who were his disciples? If you're familiar with the Gospels, you probably just automatically think, well, the 12, of course. But does that circle of 12 disciples exist yet? No, they don't. That doesn't happen until chapter 10. At this stage, four of them, those fishermen, would end up being part of that 12. So then, 
Who are the disciples here? What is a disciple of Jesus? It's somebody who follows him. Who was following him? It was the crowd of people I've just listed. And then Jesus does something crazy. And we need to understand the radical nature of what Jesus does here. And he pronounces eight blessings over people who are perceived by their society as rubbish. Wow. There was a moment of surprise that reframed everything. Nobody in this crowd was familiar with what Jesus was saying here. It was new. They were hearing the good news of the kingdom for the first time. And he's promising them things like the kingdom of God and inheriting the earth and that they will be the ones called God's children and that they will be the ones who will see and meet God in a personal way. And the words that Jesus is using here actually affirms everything about these people. Can you imagine what it would have been like for them sitting on the hill that day to hear those words? They must have just gasped and said, how can this be? Jesus is obliterating and deconstructing the popular worldview of the time. He does that. And he's saying here, that they're the fortunate ones, that the kingdom of God is here and it's being offered to them first and there's a place for them in the family of God. It's a whole reversal of how they saw themselves and their identity and their status and their value. Interesting. What we so often do with the Beatitudes these days and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is just lift these three chapters, starting from chapter 5, out of their context and treat them like a summary of the ethics of Jesus. If we do that, we'll potentially miss what Jesus is doing here. Ethical teaching, of course, was something that Jesus did, but he did it to flesh out how we should respond to his core message. And if we go down that track of taking the Beatitudes out of their context, it's so easy to turn them into ideals or formulas or virtues that we need to strive to attain. And when we do that, it seems like they give a status and favour with God, which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is doing here. That is so important. I need you to hear that. So let me say it again, just in case you're having one of those mid-sermon tune-outs. We all have them. If we pluck the Beatitudes out of their context and turn them into a list of things that we need to strive to do, that is the exact opposite of justification by grace. And it becomes this odd, twisted way to earn blessing. And that is not the gospel. And it's just not what Jesus is doing here. Nowhere in these verses does Jesus tell us to go and try to be poorer or mournier. I'm making up words now. He simply announces this big surprise. The availability of the kingdom of heaven beyond all existing assumptions. That's the gospel that says, hey you... Your life's a mess. Welcome to the kingdom. Blessed are you. Hey, you, you're really sad. Come on in. Oh, you're so poor at a material level or a spiritual level. Come in. Welcome to the kingdom of God. You're so blessed. 
and you're so welcome here. And then it's out of that blessing, out of that place of welcome where people did nothing but show up and choose to sit at the feet of Jesus, that you then get the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, that manifesto of a whole new way to be human. You then get Jesus saying, now here is how you live in apprenticeship to me. Now here is how you follow me. It's in that order, first blessing and then a whole new way to be human. And that, my friends, I think should blow your mind. We're going to look at one blessing each week. Each one starts with the word blessed or blessed, so we better work out what that means to start with because it may not be what you think. Blessed is the word makarios in the original text in the Greek. It's really hard to translate into English because we actually have no equivalent for it. And the tricky thing with the word blessed here is that it's not the same word used in the Greek in other parts of the Bible for blessing from God. Some translations in the Bible use the word happy instead of blessed, and there's definitely some of that in there. However, the problem with that is that as soon as we hear the word happy, we hear it with all the overtones of our Western culture, where happiness usually relies on our circumstances being good. But here Jesus is teaching that when it comes to the gospel of the kingdom, blessedness is not a subjective feeling, but rather an objective reality. Some translations use the word fortunate. Some scholars argue that the best equivalent that we have in English, but it's still not quite right, is congratulations. That it was more like a greeting. So when something great would happen to you, someone would come up to you and say, Makarios, congratulations, blessed are you, happy are you, fortunate are you. So you need to keep that in mind as we travel through these. So in the remainder of our time today, we're going to look at the first blessing briefly. So have a stretch, have a wriggle, then let's do this. We're not very good at concentrating post-COVID, I don't think. Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we read this with the understanding of what blessed means, it's like we're seeing Jesus see these people and then say to them, there it is, congratulations, right on, way to go you guys who are poor in spirit. That seems kind of weird. We don't think about being poor in spirit as something good. We don't think about being poor in anything as something good. And yet Jesus starts the whole foundation of what it means to belong to the kingdom here. So let's explore it. Poverty or being poor is when a person doesn't have enough or when they feel like they're not enough. So something is lacking materially or emotionally. The phrase used here in Matthew is poor in spirit. Not even going to attempt to pronounce the Greek up there, it's up there for you if you want to have a go, but it literally means the poverty stricken in spiritual things. I'm still grappling with how far those words poverty stricken in spiritual things extends. I'm actually not sure. What are those spiritual things that we can be poverty stricken in? Perhaps it's those who don't know Jesus yet, who are living their lives completely independent of God, either because no one has shared the good news with them yet, 
or they've decided it's not for them. They haven't come to that place of repentance and turning and following Jesus. And if that doesn't change for them, the Bible tells us that it will lead to an eternity without God for them. That's definitely spiritual poverty, yeah? Maybe it also includes people that are already following Jesus, but who find themselves struggling in areas they know aren't pleasing to God. Maybe I'm speaking straight to your heart right now. Maybe you know that you're doing something wrong. You haven't been found out yet, but it's haunting you. And you live in fear of people finding out. Or maybe you feel like you're constantly wrestling with a tangled mess of inner compulsions that you just can't seem to break, even though you want to. Perhaps it's those who find themselves weak. Anyone feeling weak today? I wonder if you recognize yourself in any of these things. Maybe you're barely scraping by financially and the basics of life are a daily struggle for you and it affects every part of your being. Or maybe you recognize there's things in your life that aren't working, but you just can't seem to change them. Maybe you've just come to the end of yourself or you don't have anything left in your tank and you find yourself saying, not actually sure that I'm going to make it. Or you're weary and the commands of God feel so impossible to you right now. Or you feel like you're in the wilderness and God seems distant and silent. Or you feel like a nobody, insignificant, overlooked, unseen. Or you feel like you struggle to understand the things of God. Or you think that everybody else knows so much more than you about him. Or you're faithfully sitting in these pews every week but you know you're not spiritually alive and it all feels a bit dull and mundane for you. Or maybe you just can't find your spiritual rhythms again this side of COVID that used to be so rich for you. Or you're finding it hard to trust God with the season that you're in right now. Or you're ready to give up on praying for something that's so important because you've prayed for so long and you don't seem to be getting an answer. Or you feel like you've got absolutely nothing left to offer that you're done, and all you can do is come to God with empty hands. Maybe spiritual poverty is all of those kind of things too. I don't know. And maybe, just maybe, it's okay for us to not have all the answers and to have to say we're still working it out, whether we're the ones standing up here preaching it or not, and be willing to open God's word and to let it invite us into conversation with each other about this and our wrestles with it. Let's be real about these people. None of us knows everything. And our growing and our learning and our transforming should never end in this lifetime, yeah? So, whatever being poverty-stricken in spiritual things means, I love these words of Charles Spurgeon, and they're profound, so listen well. Not what I have, but what I have not is the first point of contact between my soul and God. And to those who are poor in spirit, here's what Jesus says. Congratulations, Makarios. And we see that it's precisely those who are in the midst of the most difficult and desperate circumstances who are often the most open-minded and ready to receive help from someone totally outside of themselves, namely Jesus. 
Dave mentioned it last Sunday morning when he preached. He was talking about the Israelites spending three days camping on the bank of the very flooded River Jordan and trying to work out how on earth they were going to cross it as a nation. And after three days of strategic planning with the best of minds, they came to a conclusion. And I quote Dave, their conclusion was that they were staffed. There was absolutely nothing they could do. That's the point. The message paraphrase of this particular beatitude actually reads, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Isn't that just so beautiful and so hope-filled? I mentioned earlier that I've been wrecked by sitting with these beatitudes. I started at the place where I pulled them out of their context as a neat little package labelled the Beatitudes and thought they were a great list of character traits to work on because I like working on stuff. fitted my personality really well. But then I started asking questions and getting curious and looking at context and I couldn't ignore what I saw. And I read... And I listened to what other reputable Christian leaders were saying. And I remember one Thursday night feeling so sick and like my stomach was literally in knots because I didn't understand. And there seemed to be two very different perspectives on the Beatitudes. And people that I trusted were saying two different things. What do you do with that? The point of view that they were virtues and the complete opposite point of view that if we treat them like that, we're missing what Jesus was doing. And I begged God for clarity, like I was begging, asked Aaron, (laughs) he had to live with me through this, (laughs) because I was just so scared that I was going to treat scripture wrong and I didn't want to do that. It is so weighty to stand up here and teach. A few agonizing days later, I got my clarity. It was a Sunday. I sat up the back of the chapel here at both morning services. And as you sat in front of me, it was like God reminded me of your stories. And he gave me, still a bit raw, I'm going to get a bit teary. (laughs) He gave me a glimpse of the things that you had been dealing with and are dealing with at the moment. Your pain, your struggles, the weighty stuff. And I could have gone around and pointed to almost everyone, it wasn't quite everyone, and spoken out what those things were for you. And in that moment, God impressed upon me, Andrea, the kingdom of heaven is for them. And at the moment, all that most of them can do is turn up. After both morning services that day, people pointed out to me how tired I looked. And I used some excuse that it was my grey hair that hadn't been covered up with hair dye yet because grey hair makes me look old and tired. There was some truth in that. But I had been smashed in the best of ways because of what I'd been given a glimpse of. And I went home absolutely exhausted and not knowing whether to cry or to yell or to groan, you know, that deep, weird, inner spiritual groan that happens sometimes. Am I the only one? Does anyone else get that? Oh, thank goodness. Because of what God had shown me, 
I had to come back to the 6 p.m. service. I'm staff. That's what we do, whether we feel like it or not. And I didn't actually spend much time in the chapel that night. Sorry, Tim. Don't know if you knew that. (laughs) Because I didn't think I could cope with seeing any more. And I was protecting my heart. But I had spent the last few days begging God for clarity. And he wasn't finished yet. And he answered again. And despite me trying my best to not see, after the service... We had someone walking off the street who'd never been in our doors before, one of our neighbours who was completely broken, extremely desperate, and at the end of everything they knew and seeking help, I still got my glimpse of poor in spirit and I had my view extended beyond our church walls. So... I've landed at the point where the Beatitudes are not a list of things that we have to try to be or do, but rather an amazing insight into the way the kingdom of God works. And you don't have to agree with me. All I can do is my due diligence in my research and put in the hours of wrestle and prayer and come before God in humility and earnestly seek his understanding and what he wants shared. You need to do the same. But where I've landed makes me love Jesus even more. How could I not? And it's transformed the way that I look at people now. Even people, strangers who I pass in the street, who I'm so ashamed to say I might have been tempted to just judge. I now look at them and I picture those people on the hill that day that Jesus was speaking to them who were so poor in spirit in so many ways and him looking at them and saying, the kingdom is yours. So it continues to wreck me in the best of ways. So knowing that, here's what I want to invite you to today. It's possible that you're actually in a really beautiful season where you're feeling right now that you're walking in such wonderful intimacy with Jesus and a place where you don't have a lot of felt struggles right now. If that's you, awesome, enjoy it. But maybe that's not the case. So I want to ask you the question, where's your poverty today? Where in your life do you feel like you don't have enough or are not enough? Because this first beatitude would call you into the presence of Jesus to lay your poverty at his feet, not to run from him or avoid him or to think you're excluded from him, but to come and confess your weakness, to confess your needs. And when we come to him, we'll find him saying, there it is, congratulations, come to me, yours is the kingdom. And please hear me, that means all of the kingdom. The new reign and rule of God in your life, the goodness that's breaking into your reality, forgiveness, redemption, freedom, cleansing, eternal life and future hope. And it's an invitation to a kingdom that is not just about sin management and your ticket to heaven. It's so much more than that. It's an invitation to experience the presence of God now, to an intimate life with the Trinity now, to deep transformation now. It's an invitation to participate 
in a bigger story, a calling. He gives you gifts and abilities to contribute to the kingdom. And there's peace and there's purpose. It's another kind of life. It's a better life, another way of being. And the kingdom is yours. We learn from this beatitude that God pronounces blessing on those who know their need for him and who accept Jesus' invitation to come to him. All that's expected of us is to come, weary and weak as we are, and say, God, I need you. That's the starting point. Just as we wrap up, I just want to offer two prayers today. And if they relate to where you're at, please feel, um, please feel free to pray them too. The first is for those of you who may not be following Jesus yet, but want to. And I think we should never assume that everybody in these seats is already following Jesus, even if they've been here for decades. So if there's some of you today who are in this room who have realized that you're spiritually poor or even spiritually destitute, we could say, and you want this to be the day that that changes and you want Jesus to come into your life, would you pray this with me? Would everyone just close your eyes so that we can, you know, give people some privacy here? Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I've been living my life away from you in a way that makes me spiritually poor. I'm sorry. I want today to be the day that that changes. I believe that you died on the cross for me and rose again. And I choose to repent, to change direction, and to follow you from this day forward. Amen. And for those of you who are already following Jesus, but may find yourself in a place of poverty right now, whatever that poverty is, those of you who are just in a place of weariness in your journey, perhaps, or frustrated in an ongoing struggle with sin that you just can't seem to be over, he says to you, come to me. Or you who are weary or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So would you pray this with me? Lord Jesus, I've recognized today that I'm poor in spirit. You know me so well. You already see my struggle. You know my poverty. And you love me, and you invite me to lay it before you. So I want to come to you now with open hands, recognizing that I have nothing to offer in this space and simply say, King Jesus, fill me because you say yours is the kingdom. Amen. If you would like prayer or to find our sermon-based studies, please head to our website or check the description below for a link. If you enjoyed the video, feel free to share the video like, subscribe, and hit the bell icon for updates of when we release new videos. Remember, life can be tough, so let's do it together.